the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Welcome back, everybody, to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am one of your hosts for the day, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. And I am one of your other hosts. I am Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And you will notice a distinct lack of Michael Scavarla from Penn State University today. Mike is unable to join us for the recording, so it's just going to be Jody and I, Team J Squared, as it once was back in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, we're going to be diving into some meaty topics. That's a bit of a pun. You'll find out why later. Uh, Jody, anything you want to kind of talk about up front here? Any big news that's happened since our last recording? Well, we didn't record that long ago and nothing has really happened except um my spouse is in maryland and it's funny because i don't think he pays a lot of attention to arthropods he's a food science food science (laughs) person but he sent me a picture and it just said spotted lanternfly question mark and i was like yes and then i proceeded to send him the link to the usda aphis spotted (laughs) lanternfly Test information and just said, very nice. You're right. Don't bring any of those home. Oh, romantic. Yeah. But actually for him, it's quite like, it's quite a bonding thing. We're very, uh, we don't communicate all that much, but today he said he went out and he spent 30 minutes uh, interpreting or being, um, what would you say? Trying to impersonate Jody Green. Oh, he went around okay. and took pictures of, of, insects and i saw like brown marmorated stink bug eggs and everything but he sent me 50 photos 50 so i mean i think he sent me two of the farm that we bought but he sent me 50 photos of spotted lantern flies and and insects so um that's 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 kind of cool yeah so you know for listeners we appreciate you but as you can see you know enjoy the arthropods but do not move them around even if they are pretty they are beautiful sometimes uh if you're going to move a bug yeah be sure to kill it before you take it with you right Uh, yeah unless it's going to be a pet i guess and even then i don't know like be very cautious yeah state Uh, lines and airplanes and stuff yeah i'd be very careful about that um and then what else uh this morning i was at a house that had hundreds of brown recluse spiders that was new yeah and you have pictures to verify the fact that there are hundreds of, of them. Yeah, it took three hours. It was a rather large house and it had hundreds of glue boards. And I just needed to confirm there were brown recluse spiders. And I thought maybe I could help narrow down where they are hiding all over whole house. It's kind of creepy. What are they going to do? Uh, I'm not sure. They do have a pest control company there. I'm not sure that pest control company knows there's brown clue spiders. Uh-oh. And um, she's thinking about the homeowner is considering fumigation. So um, a Viking fumigation, whole house, tenting. It'd be very interesting in Omaha to see a tented house in that neighborhood. So that's true. You know, my job is just to educate about the brown recluse spider because right. I don't want the homeowner to make any decisions based on fear or information that she's not familiar with so that she has, she's equipped to, to ask the right questions and understand what's, what's going to happen and the expectations. Cause it's a very uh, challenging situation to say the least. I look forward to some updates on that. We are sort of uh, trying to negotiate a Brown recluse special for, as part of our Halloween uh, plethora of programming. So I'm excited that there's a possible, maybe like personal story from Jody and this client uh, about a, a Vicane fumigation. That could be interesting. Yeah. And to be honest, I went to try to find a live brown recluse spider to bring back to the office. That was not possible. I did not Unsuccessful. find it. Right. I think anyone that I saw that was not on a glue board had crossed over some insecticide. So well, I mean, it's too bad you didn't get a friend or a pet out of it. Yeah. We have about 
four, I think, right now in the insectarium. We have three widows, I think, and four recluses. Uh, so we're we're kind of plus up on the <laughs> on the venomous spiders here at the University yeah. of Kentucky. Oh, nice. Well, it's it, interesting that you said your husband brought up all those invasive species. Uh, I was going to point out that August is tree check month. Uh, it's a month that's been put out by the USDA where you're supposed to go out and check your trees for signs of invasive species, in particular, the Asian longhorn beetle. I hope Rodney doesn't uh, find any of those while he's wandering around Maryland. Oh, gosh. I don't even I'm I'm not going to talk to him anymore. There's too many bug <laughs> pictures on my phone right now. I can't. I've never thought I would hear you say that. It's too many. <laughs> uh, so that's like one thing, I guess, that that's kind of out there right now is people are intrigued by Asian longhorn beetle. They want to be out there looking for. We've had some people report in. We've been advertising Trek Your Tree Month, and uh, we've had a couple of folks uh, send in some pictures, one of which was highly suspicious. And mm-hmm. so we're we're hoping that the Office of the State Entomologist will get out there to take a look. The fire ant thing kind of continues here in Kentucky. Uh, the other big news here, I would say, is we're starting to kick up some outreach and we're trying to kick up getting ready for classes. So outreach wise, we have an, a nature night walk that's going to happen here very soon. Uh, we're calling it the Critter Night Walk. I know the nature night walk is trademark University of Nebraska Lincoln. It's not trademark. <laughs> you can you can do it, too. Traditionally, we've done it's called it was called the insect night walk. But we've struggled in recent years, uh, pre-COVID, I should say, to get enough volunteers from the department to really run the whole thing. And it was it was a big affair because we would lead groups of hikers around and like do personalized tours for them. So you needed lots of people to lead these pods of people around rather than sort of a self-guided thing. So this year we've adapted it to be more self-guided. We've invited in some cooperators from the world of mammals and bats and birds and lizards. Uh, and we're hopeful to make it kind of a big nighttime critter extravaganza. And my daughter is quite excited, I think. Uh, classes start next week. I'm not super pumped about that. I'm doing an asynchronous course this semester. So it doesn't really matter. It matters when they start, I guess. But beyond that, the schedule is kind of up to me. Have you ever taken an asynchronous course? Mm-mm. So you can't give me any tips or tricks? No. Maybe somebody listening will come in with, uh, with some good information or something. So it seems like we're both kind of chill. Uh, Mike, he's out there doing whatever Mike does. I'm sure he's lost in a woods looking for deer kids or something. Yeah, maybe he's looking at his carnivorous plants. Maybe. Maybe we'll we'll pretend that he's at peace in his, his garden rather than working. Yeah, but speaking of invasive species. We are going to be talking about one today, yeah. Well, I, we've heard of the Asian longhorn tick when we talked about ticks the last time, maybe. Um, we don't have these here in Nebraska, as far as I know, but because I love talking about ticks and someone actually brought me probably about 200 seed ticks the other day from their bed. I've been oh. really looking into tick biology and ecology and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was very interesting when you asked or told me about what's been going on in Kentucky with um, the Asian longhorn tick. So why don't you tell me what's new in <laughs> your neck of the woods? Yeah, uh, Asian longhorn tick is unfortunately, it's it's been a thing in the news here in the state, not only lately, but over the last two or three years, I would say. Uh, we started out with just a couple of sort of wildlife incursions with it. There were, I think one was an elk and one was a bear that crossed state lines and they ended up getting caught with ticks on them. And then uh, we had a human that actually had the tick on them in another county. And then since then, it's been almost exclusively found on domesticated cattle. And weirdly enough, always a bull, uh, always a male cow that's Mm -hmm. a part of this herd. So we've had, I think we're up to seven now, seven total finds in the state of confirmed Asian longhorned tick. Um, We recently have had another two counties that must have it, even though we've never seen it there before. Uh, These counties are Hart and Fleming County. Fleming County is in eastern Kentucky. Uh, It would be closer to like the West Virginia and Ohio area, sort of that direction. And then Hart County is more central Kentucky, going on the way to Tennessee, actually. So they're pretty far removed. They are near some of the other spots that we've seen Asian longhorn tick. And we didn't find the tick in those counties, unfortunately. Uh, We did have reports come in of bulls that were dead, and then they were tested, 
and they turned out to turn up positive for Thaleria, which is not something I have any experience with. Jody, I'm going to guess the same is true for you as an urban entomologist. Correct. Uh, this is just something that I've kind of heard about through the grapevine, through veterinary friends like Dr. Amy Marillo, uh, Dr. Nancy Hinkle down at Georgia. And it's something that me and my coworker, Rick, have actually been absolutely terrified about for the last two months because it was found in Tennessee in 2022. It was back in June. And we knew that it was kind of only a matter of time before it ended up in our state. And we do not have a veterinary entomologist on campus right now. Uh, Rick and I kind of split the extension duties for the cattle industry between us and the equine industry as well. Two huge uh, agricultural movers in this state. Uh, a fun fact about Kentucky, we have the largest beef herd east of the Mississippi River. Uh, I did not know oh, that. I didn't I know I, that either. I thought I was leaving beef behind when I left Nebraska, but we've got a large head of cattle in this state. And uh, the horses are, of course, we're the horse state, the horse capital of the world, Lexington, Kentucky here. Uh, they don't get filaria as far as I know, but Asian longhorn tick can get on them as well. So uh, all of this is just kind of swirled together to be this potentially like absolutely cluster of a problem. Uh, I won't use the word that I actually want to use. Perhaps this is a family friendly show, but uh, it's just, it seems very scary. And this has been in the news quite a bit lately after the, the find here in Kentucky. So I think today I just kind of wanted to try and talk through this with you, uh, you and I as entomologists, I love having conversations with you uh, because we kind of break things down and we're, we're good at bouncing things off of each other to understand stuff. So I wanted us to kind of talk through Thaleria and Asian longhorn tick and lead our listeners on sort of a journey through these twin problems and, and kind of what's going on. Uh, so I guess to start with, we've kind of outlined Tennessee and Kentucky are the newest places where Thaleria orientalis Ikeda has been found. Thaleria is a disease that's found globally. It is considered, I think, a bigger problem in Southeast Asia and uh, places in sort of Pacifica over that direction, rather than in this neck of the woods in North America. Uh, Aikida is one of two genotypes of Thaleria that's considered pathogenic in cattle. The other one's called Chytos or Kytos. I don't know. How would you pronounce that? Um, probably Kytos just because Kytos. of Chitin, but I yeah. don't know. I, I was trying to figure out if it was more of a Chicago or a Chitin uh, ch sound <laughs> at the start. So these two are the ones that seem to cause actual health issues for cattle. There are other Thaleria that it seems to me, though, a cow may test positive for it. It nece isn't necessarily going to have exhibited symptoms, nor will it suffer from those. So Aikida is, the, is, I think, the one that most people are worried about. It has been found in Virginia and West Virginia, as well as North Carolina, Pennsylvania before. Uh, there are other genotypes of Thaleria. I think it's called bufali. It sounds like buffalo. Um, it, that's been reported in Missouri and North Carolina and Michigan. We're going to have really extensive show notes for today because I leaned heavily on some documents that were produced by the Department of Ag in Tennessee, something that was really, really awesome made by a veterinary medical lab in Virginia Tech that's all about Thaleria. And they're chock full of really good information, uh, some other publications that I have found. But basically, this isn't widespread here. It's not something that's supposed to be here. And it's vectored by this Asian longhorn tick, which is the another invasive species that's going to help this one kind of get around, it sounds like. Uh, have you ever heard of Thaleria before, Jody? Or uh, what is your experience with this tick and this disease? I have no experience with this tick or this disease, but it's very alarming that it can do this kind of damage. And I don't know, because we move cattle, is this how it can get spread because it's on the cattle, like the tick is on the cattle while they're moving or getting sold or. I think you've cattle? hit on one of the big things. One of the big questions we're going to have to really start to ask. I know that we have had anecdotal reports come to us from a couple of cattle producers where they said they were at an auction in a different state, I believe one was West Virginia, and these there were cows that were being bought 
and sold in an auction and getting shipped, you know, all over the place. They're, they're going to go across the country. This is where you're, you're picking up your, your new cows basically. And one of this one gentleman in particular was absolutely positive that he saw cattle that had Asian longhorn tick on them. Like he was, he was dead set that this had happened. He couldn't tell us any information about where that cow originated from and then where it was headed. So it's one of those things that's kind of out in the ether. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that, yeah, that's going to have to be a priority going forward is maybe having tick checks at these cattle auctions where you really kind of scope out the calves, uh, whatever it is that you're selling and make sure that you're not shipping these around because I know when I first started talking about Asian longhorn tick, I started at UK in 2019. We'd already had some fines here, but a lot of it was concentrated on the Eastern seaboard. Asian longhorn tick originated from Asia, obviously, but in the this country, the first find was confirmed in New Jersey. And then it kind of spread from there. You've seen that map before where like Maryland and Delaware's hit. Uh, so yeah. everything seemed kind of local around here, but then there was an Arkansas find and a Missouri find. So there were these big jumps and it seems to me that, yeah, that's gotta be some sort of, of shipping thing. We've, we've all seen cows and trailers on the highway. Uh, unfortunately, some of those cows may have ticks on them and that could be a way of, uh, of being our own worst enemies and shipping this around. Mm -hmm. And because they are able to use a lot of other animals as hosts and there is a really good document on the usda with all the different host types you know dog is like the third one and with a lot of the natural disasters dogs are getting displaced they're being adopted out i don't know how many you know how often i hear someone say they adopted a dog from a different state because it needed a home and are we checking these dogs for ticks and the illnesses they may be they may have and then carry and, and you know i think it gets very complicated that way for sure and it, that list that you're referring to i mean if you're looking at it what are the mm -hmm. bird species they've got listed on there oh so oh yeah that's another thing so the environment was the top because also we talk about ticks they are in the environment but just going through hosts positive host information white-tailed deer dog human cow raccoon possum, elk, cat, red fox, red-tailed hawk, eastern cottontail rabbit, coyote, horse, gray fox, groundhog, sheep, black bear, great horned owl. Um, I don't know what this one is. Uh, oh, this is probably a mouse. Um, so deer mice, probably striped skunk, barned owl, brown booby, Canada goose, chicken, eastern chipmunk, goat, gray squirrel, northern cardinal, pig. Wow. I mean, just that's a, that lot. List, that's a lot of things. None of those things respect geopolitical boundaries. They don't know where West Virginia starts and Kentucky ends, you know, so they're going to fly across. They're going to move across. To me, the bird part is maybe the, the scariest thing, like having ticks on birds, having birds fly fairly long distances. In some cases, I know a lot of times they have a territory and stay local. Uh, and as I described with Kentucky, we had elk and bear wander into the state that had these ticks on them. So wow. it's just, it's, yeah, it's kind of a matter of time. It seems like before it gets spread around and early on in the discussion about this tick, it was, it was very pleasant to be able to say no pathogens have been known to occur in it that had to be amended eventually, because I think they've demonstrated Rocky mountain spotted fever can be vectored by it. I don't know that it's happened in the field, uh, but I think in the lab, they were able to show that doesn't vector Lyme. That was always a good thing to be able to say, uh, and then the thing we talked about with wildlife and domesticated animals was you're just going to have really anemic animals. They're going to be bleeding to death essentially into these cows or into these ticks. And that's, that's the terrifying thing. Uh, they're just going to get these huge tick loads on them. But now we have this pathogen that they're known for in their native range. Uh, and it's kind of going to introduce, I think, a new complication, a new wrinkle to all of this because your question is very valid. Like, what are we going to do about moving these animals across state lines? Should we be checking all of them? Should they be getting verified? And now you're getting into like the same things we do with quarantines of plant material and soil, uh, but it involves an animal, which is right. a little more contentious. It's true. So do you know much about um, Thaleria? How I, we are not uh, 
pathogen people, right? We're, we're not uh, parasitologists. We're not disease experts. So what we're going to say, I think, will come heavily from quotes that are in these documents. We'll post in the show notes so we can give credit where credit is due. But when I was reading through a posting by Kansas State where they were talking about this, uh, this is what they described. Quote, Thaleria sporozites produced by the female are transmitted during blood feeding to the host animal where lymphoid cells are immediately affected. Although they affect cells, Aikida and Kytois, uh, Kytois genotypes are not known to have any negative effect. In advanced Thaleria stages, red blood cells are infected and destroyed, which is responsible for the clinical signs. Anemia, abortion, fever, and weakness are typical clinical signs of an acute affection, uh, which is similar to anaplasmosis, the disease that Thaleria is most often compared to. Most animals recover, but they become lifelong carriers, meaning that the ticks could then pick it up and from them and spread it again. Clinical signs can reoccur in carriers during times of stress, such as late gestation, lactation, and transport. Uh, so it's not great. Uh, there have been cattle uh, apparently that die of this. I think it's around a 5% rate. Is that what you also remember reading? Yes. Uh, so it's it's not going to wipe out cattle herds, but they all will be infected. And it's another stressor. We are concerned with animal welfare, of course. So we don't want that to happen to them. Um, with you being in Nebraska, Jody, uh, have you heard people getting concerned about this or have you received any questions about this? I have not received any questions about it. I think a lot of cattle people, the UNL beef, all sorts of Groups like that should be interested. I also thought that they should be interested in the Lone Star tick as well because of the red meat allergy. It's just really hard to get people to get serious about this when they think it's not going to happen here. But right. I think it it can. Can you describe for our listeners kind of the attitude toward ticks in Nebraska? I always thought it was kind of an interesting state when it came to ticks. Yeah, and I think that's why I fight so hard for tick education, because when you grow up somewhere that's got ticks and tick-borne diseases, it's just a natural thing for you to like check for ticks. This is important, you know, wear your repellent, tick safety. And then when I got here, it's, I want to say, quote, this is a no Lyme state. We don't have to worry about it. And there's a lot of attitude where like, if it's not like we didn't, we don't see that. It's not a problem. It hasn't happened to me. We only get ticks out East, things like that. I haven't been traveling because a lot of it, the diagnosis, if anyone was diagnosed with Lyme disease, they had often been traveling. And so it was like, not in Nebraska, you brought that from here. So, right. so I don't know what you would call that as an overall attitude, but there's not really an accountability of it here that we should worry and do anything here. That's kind of your fault. It's the human's fault for bringing it back here. One thing I always thought was kind of weird is uh, with ticks, it's not just Lyme. Like there's, there's a whole host of other things that you got to be concerned with. I, you shouldn't mess with ticks at all. Like we should all be very cautious no matter where you live uh, because right. there's multiple other pathogens. We, in, in fact, knew people at UNL that ended up with Rocky Mountain spotted fever and it didn't go very well for them. Right. And so, yeah, I think everyone's very preoccupied with Lyme disease and it's like, oh, well, if it doesn't cause Lyme, then it's okay. I'm like, no, it's not okay. There are a lot of nasty diseases that you can get from any kinds of ticks. And if you have a tick on you, you know, safely remove it. Um, people love to like burn them off too and do like kind of stupid things to their animals and their kids. And I'm like, do not do that. Right. Um, and, you know, I did have to tell the person who brought in all the seed ticks that the larval ticks, you know, aren't infected at that time, but you also need to treat your animal. And the response there was that they read online a lot of negative side effects about the treatments for animals, um, for tick and fleas. So they don't want to treat their pet. Uh, you know, it's one thing to read about those side effects, but I can also speak from experience as somebody that does tick education. I've met probably five or six people just this year that have lost their dog to Lyme disease. So, 
you're rolling the dice. I mean, your dog, your pet, they're very likely to get into these habitats where ticks live. They're very likely to be exposed. And you are probably not going to know it uh, in time because I don't know too many people that they're going to comb through their dog's fur when it comes in through the dog door or that are going to mm-hmm. take the time to, to do those tick checks. I, I know that maybe you want to invest that way and that's fine. That's your time, but you can just use the medicine and you will, you will see success. Right. That. Uh, because yeah. yeah. Cause for all the ticks that were feeding on the dog that was then in the person's bed who then fed on the person right? and they brought all the ticks in. I was like, well, you know, if you treated your dog and they fed on your dog, then they would be dead. They wouldn't have had the chance to bite you. But, you know, you sleep with your dog, you don't want to treat your dog. Well, that's your problem here. Here's what I know about ticks. You know, good luck with that. That's all I can do. Um, you know, but for Lyme disease, it's like a bacteria mm-hmm. that's like Borrelia and it goes from tick to mammal. For like West Nile, it's a type of virus, right, that goes from, you know, so these are all like zoonotic diseases that can be transferred from animals to to humans. So we're gl- I'm glad that the filaria does not get transferred to humans. That's really good. Um, but that one's like a protozoan they always talk about. So it's, you know, all these different pathogens, um, they're all different and they can cause the illnesses. So like filaria is the illness, right? Is the disease caused by the protozoa. Right. That's Valeria orientalis Akitas. So it's always like, because I didn't, I'm not med vet. I'm always like, okay, so there's this, there's that, there's a host, it's a vector, you know. There's a pathogen, which is vectored into us, which is the host. And then we express a disease based on that pathogen. Uh, And you're right. This is a protozoan, which makes it different than a lot of the other things we talk about with ticks. For your tick programming, uh, is, is Lone Star your number one tick? Depends where it is. Right now in this part, I don't know what you call a south north central. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's region. We've got lone star tick larvae. So, you know, based on that time of year, we still haven't seen a lot of I haven't seen any uh, black-legged ticks, but we know they're out there. And that's more going to be October, winter. Um, that time um earlier in May and June, we had a lot of dog ticks. So, um, we do here have a program called tick tag go where, you know, people can tag that. And today I went on iNaturalist to look up Asian longhorn tick and, you know, there's not a lot that have been, uh, tagged or logged in, in iNaturalist, but most of them that were, was East coast. So Philadelphia, New York, Maryland, Washington. Yeah. All kind of the mid Atlantic area. Yeah, that's cool for you to not have an ALT. I hope that continues. I know it's getting close. It's in Missouri, so uh, not too far away. Um, for us here in Kentucky, Anna Pasternak, who's been on the show before, I can't remember what episode number, but she's a graduate tick researcher. She's been doing really excellent work. She's a dynamite PhD student. Awesome. And uh, her survey work that she's been doing and the, the mailed in ticks that she gets they have really heavily demonstrated that Lone Star is our number one tick. Uh, she, I don't think, has received an Asian longhorn tick as a submission yet, and she hasn't caught one either, except for when she's been called to places where they've been confirmed on cattle. She's gone out and done some survey work in those places. So when we talk about ALT, we, we want to make it clear that it's not completely taking over. Like It hasn't displaced all of our, our our classic ticks, the ones that you see on all the cards and the warning posters and stuff when you go camping. But it's something that we got to think about, that we got to worry about. Uh, it's not a very interesting looking tick. I think it's kind of a chocolatey brown color, a little smaller maybe than most of the other ticks as an adult. Um, the front legs are a little longer than the rest, which is how it gets its name. But truthfully, I think most ticks have longer legs in the front when you kind of compare them. So it it doesn't have a dot on its back. It has none of the sort of Rorschach inkblot patterns that you see with some of the other ticks. It can be confused with, I believe, rabbit ticks uh, in parts of the country. It looks very similar to, but it's something that's been around in the United States 
for an unknown period of time. I've read a couple of different numbers on this. Jody, have you dug around for the history of this at all? Well, it says New Jersey 2017, but first, first, first reported 2013. So maybe they saw it and then they didn't see it for a while. And then it was here. And what they do know is that when that happened, I mean, it was like a really heavy population of ticks, like no doubt about it on some type of livestock, right? There was lambs uh, initially. Yeah. And I remember that it was a big deal because these ticks are very different. You want to talk about like parthenogenesis (laughs) and um, yeah, these ticks are parthenogenic. I don't know if I have any lines in that. I mean, technically as a man or male, I don't think I should be able to talk about asexual reproduction. Well, they do, evidently they have two races or like right. they can have a, a sexual population where they do have males. So they're not completely not right. there. And then there's others that are just, they don't need a male to continue um, their population. And that makes those types of organisms that can multiply that way or reproduce without mating very difficult especially when they're invasive species we have that problem with um invasive jumping worm right they don't they don't need to mate so it's it's just quick population growth right so you only need one and then um i was reading the paper from uh i don't know oh 2018 about how they developed the like the development of trying to de- classify whether it was parthenogenic or not um because yeah they were just kind of watching the the tick and the females like feed and then over time what developed and what happened like without mating so that that they were able to classify it that way so um what an invasive attribute right i mean yeah. to be able to just clone yourself it seems like just that's a huge leap yeah. forward for an invasive species. Right. Like just sneak me in there and I'll create my own population right. and then we'll just take over. <laughs> uh, they have snuck in, as, as Jody mentioned, first in New Jersey, currently found in 17 states, I think, with with distinct confirmations. These include Missouri and Arkansas out west. Uh, then you go further east, you have Kentucky and Tennessee, as well as West Virginia, Virginia. Uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Uh, Then you head north, you have Ohio, you have Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. Uh, There are maps being updated very frequently. The USDA has one that was last updated in June. It looked like it had everything that uh, I know about, at least that I had seen prior. So uh, like I've said, here in Kentucky, this is something I've had to deal with as an extension professional because we have seen them uh, pretty much since this all started. I think the first report was in 2018, and then we've had multiple other ones come in since. Um, there are people that are very nervous about it. Uh, then it, in the beginning, it was just about what's going to happen if my farm gets this? How will I know? What can I do? And then now it's this deliria thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So as was mentioned before, started in Tennessee. It's not necessarily going to wipe cattle out, but in other countries where the Thaleria pathogen is vectored and gets into things like dairy cattle and others. There are long-term effects like uh, 25% decrease in milk production, according to an APHIS publication. So it's alive, but it's not as productive as it was prior. That has consequences for the farmer's bottom line, as well as for the environment. That might mean they need 25% more cattle to get back to the baseline milk production that they'd like to be at. Uh, meaning that there's more cows eating more grass, producing more methane, etc. So it's complicated, I think, is kind of the bottom line of this. Uh, I'm I'm really nervous about it, if I'm honest with you, Jody. I think that I don't think I'm going to have to deal with a lot of dead cows. And as a horticultural entomologist, I don't know where I would start uh, as an extension professional in that capacity. But I'm kind of worried about what's going to happen for our cattle producers. You know, we're already, we're not a rich state. Uh, we have people that kind of depend on this stuff for their livelihood. Right. I hate seeing another pressure on them. And I, I, I'm sure that your, your clientele, I know you're not in the beef group, but surely the mood would be much the same out there. Don't you think? Oh yeah. And I probably should get in touch with some of the people out there to see what they are doing. 
because monitoring is probably the best way to find out if it's there or not. If, oh, that's another thing about Nebraska. Like if you're, if no one's continuously surveying or monitoring or looking around, like when you do find it, you know, it's, it's a surprise and there could be a lot of them. So that's why, you know, scouting and monitoring any situation when it comes to IPM is really important, but I don't know what they're doing here and in other states to look when, when Anna and other people are doing, I guess, tick surveillance on known farms, do they survey the same way with like drags and tick flags? So yeah, uh, Anna, the way that she's described it to me is they go out, they, they drag a set area. She also described to me that they were riding the ATV through these areas where the ALT was known to be. And it was, they were like, they were coming for them, right? Like you could see them now for a person, you know, you're able to observe it, perhaps flick it off of you and stuff, but for a cow or a deer or whatever, probably not going to be able to intercept it as easily. So it just, it seems very insidious. Uh, I know that we are, we shouldn't anthropomorphize like that when talking about invasive species, but it it's a sneaky little blood sucking ninja, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you would monitor for that. Uh, how do you deploy people in a proper way? Uh, are you checking cattle as they come into the state? Are you just having random drags on farms? Um, that You need a lot of people to be able to pull something like that off. And then I read that they were most active April to October, peaking in August. So that's right now. So if anyone is <laughs> concerned, probably now is a good time to go uh, look. If you're feeling then, ticky. Yeah. And there are also three host ticks, which is similar to some of our other ones. That So they've got to feed on a host, consume a blood meal fall off, molt to the next stage on a different host. So those are the different opportunities um, for feeding. But it looks like those samples are found on so many different types of hosts that it makes it really difficult and easy for them to pass through because how often is a mouse going to run into your your barn or your pasture? Well, and just think about cattle production, right? I mean- think of how many cows are usually there and okay, I drop off this cow, I molt and Oh, look, another cow. <laughs> right. Uh, it just seems like it's perfectly set up for a breeding ground for them. So it's not like, it's not like a plant with lice on it necessarily or aphids on it where you're just going to get the same population building and never leaving. But in a certain setting, I feel like it could almost simulate that where they're just around, they're molting, they're maturing, and they're climbing on and feeding on cows. Mm-hmm. Where are they, I guess, where are they native to? And are they a problem where they're from? They are a problem where they're from. They are native to Eastern Asia. They've also been introduced to Australia and New Zealand and other Western Pacific islands where they've also been known to carry pathogens. Um, this is from that USDA APHIS publication that we'll link to. In those areas, uh, this is where the, the part I mentioned about 25% decrease in milk production occurs after infection with some of these, these pathogens. Uh, it's also been found on domestic animals and a, a variety of wildlife. So I don't know that we know what happens to those necessarily. If there's issues for them, one would assume that there could be. But um, I don't, I don't, I hadn't seen any information about you know, what happens to possums with Right. All these ALT on them. Yeah. Like, do they have, do they get symptoms of any illnesses or, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they can contract filaria and express symptoms of it, uh, or if it's just a matter of having a huge tick load on you. Well, and I can see it being a problem with, I mean, with milk and meat production for sure. I mean, that's, you know, the economy. And also when you need to treat though, with whether it's you're treating the animal for symptoms, you know, if they're like organic producers, then they're kind of in a lot of trouble unless they know what they're doing and are able to use something that still is in the guidelines of organic production. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's also the case just for anybody that produces at all. I mean, I know we, we preach about IPM. But when you start to deal with an invasive species, IPM, it doesn't get necessarily thrown out the window, but it has to be heavily adapted. 
in order to kind of confront these invasive problems. And then I think it's further complicated. I mean, an invasive species in a plant is one thing, but an invasive species on on a living, breathing mammal is a whole other beast, right? I mean, you're talking Mm -hmm. about how, like, oh, the the economic threshold is for suffering uh, or what have you on on these animals. So it feels like intervention is needed earlier uh, and perhaps even in more drastic fashions than we're necessarily used to. That's what I've read in terms of of, of pathogens here. Jody. I know you've been doing some research as well. So can you share some of that information? Yeah. So I saw, we talked about the filaria and also puroplasmosis in cattle can also cause, um, is it babesiosis in dogs? And then when it came to humans, I saw there's a rickettsia. Um, Japonica, which causes spotted fever in humans. So that's also called Japanese spotted fever. So this is an illness that's known in the native places where this tick and the diseases are found. So what I saw was it's not found in the US yet, but that is a concern. Uh, And then there's also something called SFTS, severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome virus. And that's um, in several species of ticks, including the Asian longhorn tick. And it says 30 with up to 30% fatality rate in humans. Uh, That's scary. Also not found in U.S., but this is where it's important to maybe find some peer-reviewed research, find some information, you know, from, from Asia and all these other places to find out, you know, what we should be looking for, what those symptoms are. How fast are there rashes? You know, what happens with that? It looks like if there's a severe fever and it looks like a very high fatality rate, if it's found, you know, that virus is found in ticks and viruses are a lot different. Like there's not a lot you can do except for treat symptoms. So, you know, we should really get to get, get to doing their, um, the research and reading upon that. Feels like to me, the word yet is doing a lot of heavy lifting in what you're saying. It's a very ominous word as well. Well, yeah. And I didn't even know until you started talking about Thaleria this week, you know, what kind of things we should be concerned about because we were talking about Thaleria and cattle, but I'm like, these things are also feeding on so many different things. What about humans? Um, You know, so looking into that, but when it comes to protecting ourselves from the ticks that we see every every day outside, um, we have to be kind of on guard all year round. So it's not like there's a season for ticks. There's just seasons for different species of ticks. So it's important to just be aware of that and also do your tick checks. So on really, I guess, warm days here where there's not snow cover, you know, check your dog for ticks when you go outside, check yourself for ticks take a shower after coming inside. I say a couple hours, check all those places that ticks like to go. Some of the ticks, they start feeding right away. Like Lone Star ticks are very aggressive feeders. So they'll even bite your legs as soon as they find you, they'll just start feeding. So that's why you want to take those showers and check as soon as possible. If you're doing field work or hunting or things like that, you know, DEET wouldn't be terrible to have, but you still want to do tick checks or wear permethrin-treated clothes, and that is permethrin specifically labeled to spray on clothes to protect you from ticks and mosquitoes. I have to say that because I do not want people going out and just buying permethrin. Right. Right. Permethrin for roses, also your pants. No, do not do that. Right, and permethrin is very toxic to cats. So when you're spraying your clothes, don't have your kitty cat around. So excellent point. It's like that. Just definitely read the label. There are ways to protect yourself. But, you know, when we're talking about Asian longhorn tick and all the different kinds of hosts, what can like what's the management for (laughs) for farmers or people that have pastures with livestock? It's unfortunately it'll sound familiar to the similar thing, the same things you were talking about with humans, except uh, I don't know of anybody that's spraying their cows with DEET. Uh, I wish that was something that we could do. Just get like a jumbo can of off and really spray that herd down before you let them loose. But they're outdoors so much. They're being exposed so much. 
most farmers really have to start with thinking about habitat modification, frankly. Um, a pasture, a farm, a barn, all of these areas, if you're creating habitat where ticks can survive, then they're going to, and they're going to be around to get on your animals. They hate UV light. Ticks don't want to be exposed to sunshine if they can help it. So if you've got overgrown areas, if you've got a lot of brush, if you've got pasture that leads up to it, you're going to end up with ticks wandering in and getting on your on your, your cattle and your other animals. So do some brush removal, take things down and mow it. Uh, if you can remove that kind of habitat, if you can keep animals from getting close to those kinds of edge habitats, the middle of the pasture is not going to be super hospitable to a tick, uh, especially if it's kept low by grazing. So we, we don't necessarily need to worry about there. Uh, we need to worry about those edges. They can treat these areas as well. Um, it's not easy to do because you're talking about usually large acreages, but you're not talking about a wall-to-wall -wall application either. You need to go in and be very specific. Uh, over time, you may learn that, oh, I, I let them loose over here. They ended up with ticks uh, each of these three months that I did that. When I rotated over to that spot, maybe I need to go in and, and look and do some barrier treatments there. So you'd be using something like bifenthrin or what have you to try and spot treat for these. But yeah, please don't go out and treat your entire acreage with a pyrethroid trying to wipe out ticks. It's not going to work uh, and it will cost you too much money in order to do that. As for the animals themselves, we can't use DEET, but there are other options, including ear tags, which can be placed on cattle. Um, you do need to do tick checks on them. I know it sounds like a ton of work, literally, to get up and close and personal with a cow. Uh, all those areas that we talk about on people, those stinky, creased, sweaty, hairy areas that you don't show to other humans, those are the same spots that they get on with cattle. So behind the ears, up on the neck, in the folds uh, between the legs and the, the belly where they're kind of walking and have their armpit, ver their version of an armpit. Um, all of those are going to be hot spots for ticks. So you got to get in there and you got to look. And if you catch these early enough, you could do something about it before they, they pop up in huge numbers, really harming your animals and you can get them identified. Um, hopefully when you're using things like ear tags, uh, back and side rubbers that are charged with insecticides that the cattle have to walk through, porons for things like ivermectin can also be used for heavy infestations of ticks. Um, they can be applied along the back, the top line of the animal. Uh, all of these things can help with tick management, but it's it's a constant struggle from what I understand. Uh, you know, we talk sometimes in, in, in pest management about kind of a one and done application, uh, how that's the goal, but that's never going to happen with this because there's just continual pressure. You can't apply something to the animal that's going to last the whole year, at least nothing that I know of, where it's an insecticide that's going to kill them for forever because then you'd probably be hurting the animal. That's the extra layer of complication here. So you have to always follow those label treatments. Be very careful when doing this, of course. Um, be very conscientious that you're, you're, you're working with something alive. That's an animal that could be impacted. Uh, there's withdrawal periods and everything like that on the label. Uh, there's special things for if it's a beef cow or dairy cow, all of those. And protect yourself. Uh, you'll be pouring on chemicals and things. So make sure that you have personal protection to keep that off of you. Consult with your veterinarian. Absolutely. And keep a, keep a close look on your local department of ag and your local extension services. That's where these news wires are coming from that let out alerts about this. Um, I heard about this over the weekend, this past weekend. It was very funny. Uh, we had our departmental retreats and I'd missed a call from a reporter and I wasn't able to get back to them before the day was over. And so I sort of thought, oh, maybe I'll check back in on Monday. But the news story had already broken. And it was very clear that they were they wanted a quote about ALT. So they used one from a press release I did two years ago. Uh, so or one year ago, I can't remember. And so it it's out there. It's going to happen. You need to keep close attention if you're a cattle producer, if you're from a family of cattle producers. And then for just everybody else under the sun it's still a tick. It's still something that can bite you. You need to be very conscientious of that. Do we know what percentage of ticks are infected with filaria? That I don't know. Yeah. I wish I knew information like that. We just, we just know that they're infected because the cattle have been tested positive. Right. right. 
Yeah, I think this is all sort of a chain, right? We we have wow. the tick, we didn't have the pathogen. Now we're finding the pathogen. This is its main vector. So ipso facto. I, I don't know how many ticks that have been caught in the in the country have tested positive for filaria. Maybe we can train dogs to be like ticks there you go. dogs off the cattle. I thought you were gonna say wrap them in burlap and send them through the brush and then pick it off the burlap. Oh, it's like me in my wedding dress. We st- I yes. still look every time I'm at Goodwill for a wedding dress <laughs> to run through a field to pick up ticks. It'd be very easy to see on there. Yeah. We're sorry for kind of a downer of a topic. Uh, invasive species and animal welfare are never a ton of fun, of course. Uh, Meaning it keeps our jobs interesting. There's always something emerging, some emerging past that has so much to do with one health again, right? It's not just like someone's house. It's not just an animal or a person. This has to do with like the food that we eat. It has to do with our pets. It has to do with the environment, has to do with our our people, people's livelihood. So when people don't think that arthropods are important, they definitely are. It's very true. Very true. Uh, next time we will be come convening again as a trio. I'm presuming, uh, we hope that you'll tune in for that here in the future. Um, until then you can find our show, arthro-pod.blogspot.com on the interwebs. We are also on many of your favorite and probably all of your favorite podcatcher apps, uh, Stitcher, Apple podcasts, Spotify, you name it. We are there as arthro-pod. Do not forget the dash or you won't find us. If you enjoy the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Those always help people to find the show and to know that the show is something that is entertaining or interesting or informative, at least, to listen to. Uh, And they always warm our hearts when we read those. I love all the emails that we get as well. Um, If anybody ever wants to send an email they want read on the show, just mark uh, for the show and we will read it out loud for you. Um, That's us. The hosts are also on the internet. I am at Bugman John on Twitter. I'm at Jody Bugs Me UNL. And we hope that you'll find us there or the show, Arthro underscore pod show, uh, and maybe communicate with us through that platform. If you have any topic ideas that you want to hear about in the near future, let us know. We'd be happy to take those. And we always appreciate your patronage. And we hope you'll catch us on another episode of Arthropod very soon. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel. As the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging. Please don't. He didn't put a funny thing at the end of the last one. I couldn't find anything. There was no funniness. Okay. Well, okay. Do you want to tell you what the funny parts were?